When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno, sending to you live Thursday, the 22nd of September. On the back of uh, a crazy day in markets, we've had intervention in the Japanese yen market. We've had a uh, massive move in dollar interest rates on the back of the Fed meeting yesterday. So we have plenty to talk about today. We are going to ask the question, is it time for a fierce reverse FX war today. Uh, and I have invited uh, not only one, but two guests to help me answer that question. So first of all, I want to say welcome back to you, Western Nakamura, our own uh, member of the Real Vision team. Good to see you. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on and allowing me to intervene haha into your uh rvdb today <laughs> good joke weston i also want to say uh, welcome to tavi costa the portfolio manager at crescott capital it's good to see you tavi good to see you too thanks for having me looking forward to this so i i wanted to start with the sort of biggest breaking news of the day the intervention in the japanese yen market it was essentially that intervention that led me to ask the question is it time for a fierce reverse fx war today weston if we start with you please give us the overview of what happened earlier on today in the japanese yen market sure um first of all to answer your question yes in terms of fx war is my uh is my response but uh let's just rewind 24 hours ago okay so we have fomc hike rate 75 base points um and powell being very clear about being hawkish about 10 hours later you have the bank of japan who had their policy meeting no change this is like the 50 or 60th straight meeting in which there's no change in policy um and then the bank of japan policy statement comes out around noon in Japan, and then BOJ Governor Kuroda's press conference comes at 3.30 p.m. after, you know, cash close. Tomorrow's a Japan holiday, um, so it's actually kind of ahead of a long weekend and all that. But in between that time, you had the Ministry of Finance uh, come out and once again, you know, just basically do what they've been doing for the last really like all year long, but really intensely for the last month or so, which was to jawbone uh, the, the yen stronger um, as it was starting to break through that one into the 145 handle after the policy itself came out. 
155 is seen sort of as a potential line in the sand. And they were gonna, they were talking about doing like stealth intervention and all that. It's not very stealth if you're like talking about it, first of all. But and then uh, 3:30 p.m., Kuroda gives his press conference, and this is where you see the most stark sort of you know example of central bank policy divergence because you just had the Fed, like I said, you know, be very clear about um, what they're doing. They're going to be hiking rates. They're going to tackle inflation, and then Japan. And uh, Governor Kuroda saying during his press conference, not only um, is the BOJ going to maintain their accommodative policy with the yield curve control, 25 basis points for the upper band, this and that, whatever. But they, he was also he also made a comment saying, you know, we're going to keep this for like a while. And by that, I'm, I'm not talking about two to three months. I'm talking about two to three years. And so that's something that, you know, I mean, that's a hell of a lot more dullish than people really had expected. By the way, Kuroda's term ends in uh, in uh, April of 2023. But nonetheless, though, that's that's pretty insane guidance, right? Going completely the other way. And so naturally, what you would expect to see is for dollar yen to move higher as that policy divergence uh, continues to widen. And so maybe about 10 minutes after Kuroda's press conference wraps up, the dollar yen basically makes a, a about a five yen crash like one way downwards um from you know about to hit 146 into the 140 handle in a space of about a half an hour or so and it was revealed that the ministry of finance had uh said that they had intervened uh in the fx markets and so this was you know th this was not that crash itself was not them intervening it might or may, may may or may not have been but that was the reaction to the announcement um, itself. So that's what basically happened. A pretty interesting backdrop. I want to include you in this discussion on foreign exchange markets as well, Tabby Costa. Um, this very weak Japanese yen and the response from the Japanese authorities, is it something that's on the radar for Crescent Capital as well? We're short the yen, and I wish I was short the yen for the whole year. And that was, you know, I, I, I thought that they were going to intervene a lot earlier, to be quite honest. Um, so it's, it surprised me as well. I think I think there's a lot of interesting um, FX transactions and opportunities that I that I I think you kind of fall into this framework of of, of believing if you're in in the view of we're entering an inflationary environment, which is my view, um, where. You know, there's some uh, some 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 crossing uh, of of FX that look quite interesting. I think you know I, I, we're talking before the show started on the Brazilian real, for instance, relative to things like the Japanese yen, relative to things like the CNH. You know, it's it's incredible to me. We're seeing the dollar move recently, along with this move in interest rates. And if I can think of two things that could actually blow up the whole global economy, that would be the two going together. So, to me, it's it's. Um, um, it's hard to believe we can see those moves sustainably. And so uh, from a dollar perspective, um, I am a, a dollar bull in general, but um, I do think we're going to see some sort of corporation coordination of central banks in general uh, to not allow this to uh, to continue. It was quite interesting the way uh, the U.S. Treasury actually uh, took this uh, this this level of inter uh, this intervention news uh, from the BOJ uh, very openly, actually. So. Um, to me, um, I think, I think this is, uh, you know, it continues to fall into looking back at, at those macro imbalances that we have currently that I think create the political constraints for central banks and developed economies. It's the first time we're seeing inflation 
in developed economies with such a large amount of debt in many, many years. And the problem here is, you know, we've been calling this a trifecta of macro imbalances, mostly in the U.S., but you can apply the same idea in other places. Um, Japan, maybe not so much on the valuation side. The trifecta really means it's a debt problem, it's a valuation problem, it's an inflation problem all happening at once. We've seen those happen in the past, but not all at once. And, um, and those are a real political constraints when it comes to a bank like the BOJ, a, a bad importer of commodities, you know, that, that makes a, a trade balance extremely fragile uh, relative to a country like, let's say, Brazil, a commodity exporter that is not as indebted as Canada or Australia and so forth. And so I view this as a change of, of balance of powers. There's a lot of opportunities will be unleashed from, from those, uh, those, this sort of long view of, 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 of macro imbalances. Uh, those those can be many. I mean, it could be emerging markets that are commodity-led economies to benefit. Those are the 60-40 uh, portfolios, the end of that, and a new portfolio approach of, of including commodities and other things that are tangible assets uh, that can actually benefit from this. Uh, and I think that the FX market itself is is not is not, is not priced into a world like that in, in many ways. And uh, some of the crosses, as I said, Brazilian real versus Japanese yen is something you know, if you look at a chart of that over the last 30 years, it's just an amazing uh, kind of a, a base being formed recently, which I think is is poised to go much higher. So uh, to us, it's it's more of a yeah, we've been uh, we've been looking for ways of uh, of hedging or long inflation book uh, with with issues that we see globally, and some of them are in the dollar world. It's it's the it's the Chinese yuan, it's the Hong Kong dollar uh, that never broke the peg, and it's it's such a cheap way of of uh, of exposing your portfolio for for kind of a tailwind uh, type of event. Um, and um, and so uh, we've been increasing our shorts in the CNH more recently. We've decreased our shorts in the equity markets today. To be honest, just just today, just right now, we've been decreasing a little bit. Increase or or uh, shorten the CNH with the with the dollar, uh, and and that's really our main play uh, in order to hedge that long producers long tangible assets part of the book, which is you know very large for us at least. And so we've been um, we've been looking for ways to uh, to not get in trouble with that part of the book. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Interesting, Tavi. I want to get back to that discussion on portfolio construction in an era of inflation, because it's certainly not a 60-40 portfolio that will work in your favor in such a scenario. I perfectly agree with, with that conclusion. But uh, before we get to that, Weston, I, I want to understand who's behind this intervention in Japan, because um, it seems as if the Bank of Japan is sort of unwilling to follow other central banks uh, in terms of rate hikes and in terms of uh, reducing the balance sheet size. So what's going on in Japan? Who took this decision? Yeah, unwilling is um, one way to put it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, as, as uh, you know, as Tommy mentioned, like, so the, the US Treasury Department comment from spokesperson was the Bank of Japan today intervened in the foreign exchange market. We understand Japan's action, which it ate, which it states aims to reduce recent heightened volatility. Yet. That's what you got out of the Treasury Department. 
the reason that that matters um, is because the intervention that happened today is not like a, a real intervention, as in it was done unilaterally, and this was not done with cooperation of G5 counterparts, or at least the, with the permission, if not the consent and sort of approval of the United States Treasury. Um, this is so when people are, you know, you're seeing like right now a lot of, you know, media headlines saying like this is 1997, 1998, this is the last time that uh, Japan intervened. It's not that at all, because when that back then in the, in the late 90s, when that intervention happened, that was done with the expressed consent of Treasury Secretary, then Treasury Secretary uh, Rubin and Tokyo working in coordination. And so what they do is what the, the U.S. And, the, and Japan does is their respective, you know, Department of Treasury and the Ministry of Finance, they're the ones who make the decisions to, um, you know, fix the yen against the dollar or whatever price or whatever they're aiming for, you know, whatever direction it is. Um, but they execute it through their central banks. So uh, the, you know, so Treasury Secretary Rubin will tell the Fed to sell dollars by yen and the Bank of Japan will also take directions from the Ministry of Finance and essentially do the same. So when people say that the Bank of Japan stepped in and, you know, intervened in the markets, technically, yes, that's true, as in that they carried out the execution itself. But they're not they're an agency. They're not doing it themselves at their own discretion. That's at, that's from the Ministry of Finance's uh, decision. What the Bank of Japan is doing as a prop book, if you will, you know, so so Bank of Japan is basically acting as a, a sell side, you know, and, and the Ministry of Finance is like their client, the buy side client. The what they're doing um, in, in their prop book essentially is they're supporting the rates market. And you could only do one or the other. You either, su you either uh, support the JGB market at the expense of the yen or vice versa, which is what basically the, the vice versa is kind of uh, Hong Kong, right? And, and the peg. So basically, you know, just from the 90s, what happened was that even with the consent of the U.S. Treasury Department and have, having this be official um, and in, in written statement and all that, um, it still doesn't really work if fundamentals aren't there, right? So back then you had um, the, you know, the, the selling of, of dollars and, and buying of yen from both sides, uh, from Tokyo and from Washington uh, or the New York, New York Fed rather, and dollar yen dropped like 10% in three days. But then it reversed like sharply, you know, back right, right, you know, right back to where it was almost. Um, it did mark the 14680 uh, high or so, um, which we're about to kind of pierce through. Um, but that that's what happened when they when there was like coordinated intervent, intervention. And what's happening right now is is not that um, what you're getting out of the Treasury is a statement of say, oh, acknowledging like, yes, we, we recognize that that happened. And uh, what I think is also happening, too, is that you're getting sort of like uh, brush off like consent, if you will. You're not getting problems from uh, other central banks and from the U.S. because of this like ripping high do dollar right so japan doing this um it's not it's not really material but it, you know you did see actually like the the g5 currencies against the us dollar uh strengthen alongside uh jpy when that when that did happen and so that kind of takes off pressure from from everybody it kind of you know perhaps even the united states as well um uh, you know trying to trying to control the, the dollar so i don't think that anyone would have too much of a problem doing it I just don't know how particularly sustainable it is, given that the other, inter the previous intervention was not very sustainable. And it, again, it just comes back to fundamentals. If the fundamentals are not aligned, it doesn't matter what the, the, the officials say. The officials will say, 
we're intervening in the yen because of volatility and because the yen is not trading on fundamentals. There is a, it couldn't be more fundamentally, you know, uh, like price action oriented right now. You know, you have you have a Fed hike, you have the Bank of Japan um, on pause, you have a, a widening policy divergence, you have U.S. Treasury yields, nominal yields ripping higher, um, yield spreads, um, you know, widening, and so dollar yen is going to naturally move uh, higher. And so, and you know, so for them to say. Um, we are doing this because you know the, the volatility and the speculation, the speculative activity, and all that. I don't see how uh, a state actor coming in with non-economic sort of you know a, a non-economic state actor coming in, intervening into uh, foreign exchange markets and creating a you know net five percent swing in the space of you know half an hour or so is fundamental and stable you know by any means either. Um, let alone uh, stealth tapering, right? So um, my sort of conclusion of all this is that as long as US and DM yields keep rising, as long as Bank of Japan maintains JGB yield curve control, which they just reconfirm that they will, they do. Um, and as long as markets concern is more on inflation than it is um, recession. And as long as Japan energy imports, you know, uh, and demand is, is up and prices of, of energy imports continue to rise. Um, and and as long as the other sort of G5 counterparties are not willing to sell dollars and euros and, and, and pounds and all that because they're all trying to fight their respective like you know inflation and not you know and deflect inflation away, then dollar yen at some point by fundamentally is, is going to you know hit that 150 mark um, likely before it hits 130. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. And uh, maybe I could add that as long as the Bank of Japan. Prince, Prince, fresh uh, gen, uh, Japanese yens to buy bonds. <laughs> it's kind of um, yeah, you, you counterintuitive. To to yeah, I mean, it yeah. doesn't really make any sense. If you tried that in a, in an Excel spreadsheet, you would probably get a circular error, right? <laughs> so, I mean, well, yeah. can I just, uh, just add, add one point, one more point too? Um, yeah. Is that like uh, I just want to talk about like, like say like why I think the Ministry of Finance is doing this? Like, it does seem very kind of idiotic almost. Um, but they they're they're doing this because essentially the Ministry of Finance is trying to buy time. Uh, they're trying to buy time enough. They're trying to basically scare the market. Uh, I don't think they did enough. If you're going to do it, you know, go big or go home. Um, they should have just kept on hitting the bid and slamming it down, like so you get like ten percent down on you know dollar yen in like an hour or whatever it is. But uh, but what they're trying to do is essentially just scare markets um, so that you don't have an, like a momentum runaway in 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 dollar yen higher. Um, and they're they're just waiting for the Fed mostly to just pause. And if they can buy themselves, they're probably thinking, you know, till 2023 or so, or probably maybe off of like, you know, dot plots, whatever it is. If they can just buy themselves a little bit more time because they know that Kuroda is going to just stay put with his yield curve control and can execute on it. Um, that's what they're trying to do, essentially. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, again, I, I just don't know how sustainable that is, um, but that's what the intention at least is. Yeah, and uh, Kuroda retires in the uh, spring of 2023, as far as I'm concerned, Weston. So just around the corner. Weston, I'll allow you some sleep. Uh, thank you for joining us and uh, unpacking this action in the Japanese market earlier today. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Tavi, back to you. Um, Weston spoke about this potential uh, coordinated action against the strong dollar. How likely a scenario is this in your view? 
I, I think it's very likely. Um, while we're along the dollar, um, I, you know, we're not along the dollar anymore against the euro or the Japanese yen or most of the other developed economies. Um, I, I just can't think of a world that can really sustain uh, this this level of a move. I mean, if you think about corporate earnings, uh, I think I have a chart on that, which I think it's been uh, other folks have done different charts similar to that. I think it's chart number five, just looking at corporate. Uh, earnings uh, revisions globally versus DXY inverted. And this chart needs to be updated. DXY is actually a lot stronger than this. It's uh, it's hard to believe we're not going to see fundamentally weaker, um, you know, earnings in general globally, uh, especially here in the U.S. as well with companies that have so much of their revenues outside of the U.S. And uh, this is all, you know, it's all, to me, it's all inter interconnected. I mean, thinking about this move on the treasury market, I mean, the treasury market to me holds the key for the whole market. I mean, it's, it's um, uh, you know, it's what's causing this interest rate differentials across many different economies. It's it's causing even from a, uh, from a monetar monetary policy spread that we're seeing across different places. Um, you know, it's not just the, the large uh, developed economies, but there's, there's sort of the risk of something like that happening in places like China, uh, which I hate to use the, the the term, you know, having their Lehman Brothers moment because that that sounds very maybe catchy for Twitter, but it, it's it's so unique what's going on there compared to what happened in the U.S. And uh, <clears throat> I'm not trying to move away from the the Japan uh, discussion, but it's uh, you know that they're all they're all involved here. You know, I, I, it's hard to believe we're going to see. A continuation of that move and so I, I wouldn't be and it's not a position for us uh, but I do think treasuries have more to go to the downside um, we're not adding to our position today we're out of the treasury shorts as well um, and uh, we've been just heavily betting against the Chinese yuan at this point interesting takes uh, Tavi you briefly touched upon the classic 60-40 portfolio so 60% equities 40% bonds bonds usually working as sort of a cushion against um, drops in earnings and the sell-off in, in, in equities. What do you make of that 60-40 portfolio in an inflationary environment as the current one? It seems to be slaughtered day after day, right? It's it's amazing what's going on. I don't think anybody uh, you know ever thought that uh, a move like that would, would happen. I mean, imagine if you're a, a pension fund you know, kind of having to deal with this change in correlations. I mean, the correlation that we're facing today is quite different. And it's not just the 60-40 portfolios. It's also global bonds versus, call it, uh, gold. You know, I mean, they used to trade very close to each other, too. And uh, more recently are, are having a big divergence. I think that's on chart seven. Uh, and uh, and it's it's, you know, to me, I mean, there's a lot of changes right now happening. And it's Every now and then you got those pivotal moments and, 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 you know, it's kind of sort of a hubris on my end to think that we can call this after 30 years of a macro regime that is now changing. And so you just kind of have to slowly uh, get into that view. But, it, you know, you could see it from, from many different fronts. I mean, perhaps inflation was overdue, uh, but the pillars of inflation today are just so sustainable, in my opinion, and so entrenched in the economy that is it's hard to believe it's going to stop. I mean, I call it the four pillars of inflation, Andreas. I I, I think it's you know it's the wages and salaries growth. Um, you know, those are difficult trends to reverse back to normal, like we saw in the last thirty years in a declining trend. I think that's a secular move. 
Um, I could be wrong about that, but then you have the second pillar, which is the natural resource, chronic underinvestments in those industries uh, in terms of the CapEx trends. You know, I could be wrong about that too, but you know, those take forever to, to, to move. And with the political effort and how management firms are, are really being pressured by shareholders to not spend capital on new developments of, of, of commodity-related projects, it's hard to believe that's going to change. The third one has to do with the fiscal spending. I mean, the fiscal spending today, even though it's lower, you know, thinking about the delta from one to two years ago, yes, there is a certainly a negative delta there. But uh, relative to other times in history, what we are spending today relative to GDP or or re even relative to what we saw in the 60s and 70s, there was actually a, a, some sort of a sense from policymakers that that created inflation. Government spending was related to uh, to uh, uh, to being a, a tailwind for inflation. Uh, I don't think that that's really uh, the view here. I mean, people are still talking about green revolution. You have the peak inequality problem. You have the, the situation of having reshaped the manufacturing plant in the U.S. That's all going to cost money. And then the fourth one, which, you know, as, as you've been in that debate as well of, of is this the 40s, the 70s, or no, this is just unique or whatever, I mean, to me, what, what was important to look back in the 40s and why I've never been much of that view, even though I respect that view, it was really because of, at that time, we're finishing a period of, of, of a very deglobalized world. And I think we're at the beginning of one today. And so to me, it's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a huge pillar of, of this inflationary problem um, that is, again, just getting started from many different fronts. I mean, you can talk about Russia. And in Ukraine, you can talk about what's happening in China versus the Western economies. Uh, you can have a discussion about the, the Middle e the Middle East as well, and other you know oil dependent economies and so forth. I mean, there's so many things moving right now in the geopolitical environment that it's hard to believe that's not going to have an impact on on inflation. And so, yeah, I mean, I I think this is the beginning of one, and uh, it, it's never clear, but um, you know, it's it, it certainly looks like it is it is the beginning of one. I can add a bit of anecdotal evidence in relation to your point on the underinvestment in the energy sector. I think right about every pension fund and asset manager that I speak to in Northern Europe have been asked by either their board or their members to defund every single project within fossil fuels over the past, say, three to five years. And it probably takes a while to reverse that trend, even though it will probably become a bit tempting, to say the least, in Europe to try and reverse some of those trends due to the lack of energy, simply speaking, heading into this winter. If you were to form a portfolio, and now I allow you a blank sheet, uh, Tavi, into an inflationary environment over the next, say, one or two decades, let's just assume that, how would you construct such a portfolio? Well, I would start with maybe we can look at the chart uh, 12, which is looking at commodities to equity ratio. I mean, everyone has been using that chart for so many years and that chart never moves. But I think finally we're starting to move in, in that front, meaning there's almost like two bombs setting off on those two parts, the commodities trade and the equities trade on the short side. Well, if it's a long short portfolio, uh, if it's a long only portfolio, let's start there. I think I think there's different ways to to express your view. Uh, number one, I think I would I would uh, put a large allocation towards mining. I think I think there's a lot of opportunities and inefficiencies in precious metals and base metals, um, especially uh, across. You can you can separate the whole industry, right? There's explorers, there's developers, and there's producers. 
Uh, majority of folks that are financially savvy like like to navigate in the producers and developers. Developers, you take more leverage, and then explorers is even higher leverage because you know the risk is much higher. But it requires a geologic knowledge to navigate that space. So I would, you know, and that's what we've been doing. I would certainly, you know, try to partner with someone that that knows how to navigate the space from a geology perspective. Um, and and create a large portfolio of ideas there because I think the major companies in the mining uh, space are facing a supply cliff, meaning they've been mining uh, their reserves, they've been basically depleting their reserves and not replenishing them. So you know it's partially through political situation of pressuring them not to invest uh, further uh, in their developments. Also, there is a real real pressure from shareholders. Uh, not allowing those businesses to invest in things that are not generating free cash flow. And that's the case with any exploration asset. They don't make any money. Now, don't fool yourself. They're not going to make any money for, you know, seven to 10 years. That's that's it is what it is uh, in today's environment, especially. And so I would start with maybe, you know, between 40 to 50 percent. I would certainly focus on that front. I would probably say another you know, call it 30%, I would separate in, in two buckets. 15% would be maybe energy. Another 15% would probably be on agricultural commodities. Um, and uh, I like those plays. They have a shorter, um, you know, cycle, energy, and especially agricultural commodities have a much shorter cycle. But energy is still, you know, what I don't like about energy is the fact they already had two big years. You know, they had a big year in 2021 and had another big year in the beginning of 2022. And now it's having a little more uh, trouble. So but it's it's still a very cheap uh, uh, sector of the economy, energy as a whole. Uh, it's hard to believe it's not, you know, it's it's not going to go higher. Let's call it, you know, three to five years from now. And so I, I think that's a that's a good, interesting investment. And finally, uh, I'm leaving what about 20% left, so about 40, 50% in mining, about 30 plus percent in energy and agricultural. Call it about 20% left. I think I think I would certainly be looking at a little bit of allocation on uranium. Um, you know, it's 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 why not more than that? Well, because I don't think there's really a supply cliff issue. There's enough supply of uranium. Uh, uh, it's it's not a, there's no supply story uh, here in terms of that. It's really a demand and political shift uh, that drives that uh, that uh, uh, that narrative. And, and finally, where I think I'm growing my um, conviction and, you know, it's something that if, if we see a pullback, let's say uh, soon here with elections and so forth and the Brazilian assets, I think Brazil is you know I've I've always been a skeptic of Brazil, um, maybe because I'm from there. Um, I've always been a skeptic of the political environment. Uh, it's it's extremely corrupted. Um, I lived there uh, most of my life, and uh, and so I have my biases, and I'm trying to put that aside. And because I, I do believe that you know, regardless of of the political environment, the political leadership, similar to what we saw in the early 2000s, if we do see Lula coming in or anything like that. It, it just really doesn't matter much over the long term because those companies are extremely cheap. You, you, you can buy Brazilian banks, you can buy uh, Brazilian oil companies. Uh, they're trading at ridiculous multiples. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a value investor. I appreciate a lot of cheap things, and I've never seen things trading at those multiples. And you can find banks trading at three, four times earnings today. Large banks, they you know, extremely profitable uh, organizations, and so. 
I think there are opportunities in, in South America in general. So even, even that base metals and precious metals part of the portfolio, I think, you know, there is a, a space to be allocating capital outside of the U.S., you know, in places like South America, I think will play a big role geopolitically in the future as well. So that's that's my answer. Now, if you want to go talk about <laughs> long and short, I can get into that, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to add, uh, Tavi, um, that the first round of the presidential election is coming up the 2nd of October in Brazil, as far as I remember. Uh, and I will interview Mariam Deyup from uh, Grimper Capital next week at Real Vision uh, from Brazil to get sort of a view on, on whether this election uh, will turn the tide on Brazilian stocks. Uh, I've been looking at Brazil as an, an, an investment opportunity all year as well. So really interesting take, Tavi. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The last thing I wanted to touch upon uh, now that we have a um, a precious metal expert on on board in the daily briefing today is the spot performance of gold and silver in this kind of environment, right? We've had our discussions over the years on whether to allocate to towards uh, precious metals in in physical format or not, um, and. I think you have a very interesting point when you uh, look at the correlation between bond markets and gold, because unusual correlations between real interest rates and gold, gold should have traded much, much, much lower by now. But something is clearly happening on the correlation front. So what's your take on the physical gold and physical silver in this kind of inflationary environment? Oh, boy. Now you're pressing on something I've been very wrong. Um, I've mm. been betting on gold and silver. Um for the last couple of years, I would say, and and uh, and I, it, it's surprising me at, at least. Uh, I think surprised a lot of people as well. Um, and I think it's it's on the back of of this major reversal of the Federal Reserve. Um, you know, going from slashing rates to zero, doubling the size of the balance sheet, to now raising rates to levels we haven't seen uh, in, in in a while. Uh, especially the the change, the rate of change of, of interest rates has been. Uh, on a three-month basis or so for I mean, it's been our six-month basis has been very drastic, I would say. Um, and, but also the bond market, as you mentioned as well, is creating some pressure. And it's interesting when you have all this negative news in as 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 part of that. I mean, there are also positive news, inflationary environment, gold should be reacting better. You know, you can create the other side of this argument. I'm not gonna pretend that there's not a you know an argument that perhaps um, gold should have been uh, reacting much better, uh, especially with the war, you know, breaking out and so forth. Uh, but we didn't see that. And that's, you know, that's just this backdrop of excess liquidity that we used to have now changing to a withdrawal of liquidity in general, global central bank assets uh, declining and so forth. And it's it's been it's been difficult, but it's been of my view uh, that, you know, I think I think uh, when you talk about this, this supply constraints on on different parts of the of the markets of commodity markets, now it's a popular thing to talk about. 
But uh, in precious metals is real. I mean, and and base metals is real as well. I don't remember the last time any of the major companies in both parts of that market have developed a new project in the space. And so the supply truly is very constrained, and it's becoming more and more challenging to to find new discoveries. Just to give you a sense, last time you know we found, I mean, we haven't found really. Uh, higher than 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 two million ounces uh, gold discoveries uh, that are actually officially uh, resources uh, in in the markets in 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 many many years right now and so it's it's becoming a problem because it's it's really under investment and and no focus and exploration whatsoever. Um, I do think that gold is starting to sniff out you know some issue. I think. I think that um, uh, the global economy is 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 imploding. I mean, it's it's hard to believe it's it's not going to with the level of monetary tightening in such a fragile environment as a whole. And so, I think that if we see that, you know, that's that's really what what could perhaps cause a trigger to change uh, the policy stance. But I don't think we're there yet. I, I think I think we're yet to see more of 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 monetary tightening in general, and yet to see as well. Uh, this uh, this lagging effect of the tightening of monetary conditions still to play out here in economy. As you know very well, uh, most macro leading indicators have been kind of pointing to that direction, uh, but we're yet to see things like earnings completely collapse. I mean, earnings are still near the top and things like that. When we start seeing that and start hurting, let's say, unemployment rates to rise and labor markets to deteriorate, and really changing that setup, where really forces the Fed to rethink about uh, their uh, their uh, their policy. I think that that's you know I think gold's going to start sniffing that uh, a little faster than most people. And so I'm I'm not changing that part of the portfolio because I I don't think you know if there was ever a time when you know I could maybe lay out a plan for the next call it five to ten years. Uh, to invest on things that are more illiquid, but they have a major, you know, potential for becoming world-class discoveries, which are not worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars. They're worth, you know, billions of dollars in a market like that. I think that moment is today. Like if, you know, it feels like it's early technology space uh, where not a lot of folks know how to navigate it very well. Like you're saying, you know, people in Europe um, uh, asking about uh, investments in, in, in natural resources as well. You know, we've been trying to be that that manager to to acquire those assets. And one of the questions we get the most are just wrong questions. It's about lithium, which is extremely difficult to mine. Uh, it's 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 about nothing that that the really uh, I would say attracts us as as a great opportunity. So there's a real lack of understanding in the space in general uh, of how to invest in space, and uh, and people are just chasing the large cap names, the middle cap names when they start buying those. But but the real inefficiencies are not there. So you can, you're able to buy companies that have discovery holes, let's say. So what what is it, exploration? Just two two one minute on that. Exploration company is a company that you know acquires land and they have mineral rights to that land and they start drilling to find natural resources. They poke holes and and look for uh, mineralized intercepts. When they have those intercepts, supposedly the probability of having a discovery increases. So the value of the market should be higher, not lower. But today's environment is just so depressed that you can find a bunch of winning lottery tickets, companies that have discovery holes that no one cares. And so you can build a portfolio, uh, kind of like a VC approach, buying all those companies that are likely to be finding great discoveries of whatever it is, base metals, gold, silver, but no one cares. And so you buy them out as, as a very large percentage of those businesses. 
and wait until until not only you can follow up and find those discoveries, but also the market, the macro, the macro backdrop, which could be incredibly favorable over the next years. And so to me, that's kind of like the the optionality that I like to invest in. So that's why I've, I've, I continue to be very bullish in the space. Interesting, Tavi. I've made it my uh, trademark to always conclude the uh, discussion in the daily briefing with a meme. And uh, I needed a meme on the Japanese central bank today. So this is a meme of Kuroda watching other central bankers hiking interest rates. He is apparently still opposed to doing anything about the Japanese yen uh, in the current situation. So it's important to note that um, the move in the yen today and the intervention in the yen today was sanctioned by the finance ministry of uh, Japan. And it was really a one-sided uh, intervention by by the Japanese authorities. And to sum up on, on your discussion, Tavi, um, it feels like we agree that the 60-40 portfolio is stone dead in the current environment uh, with inflation running at levels that we haven't seen for quite a while, uh, then it's probably time to sort of reshuffle the portfolio to more real assets. So miners, energy, agricultural commodities, and stuff like that. Tavi, a great pleasure to host you. I think this was a masterclass daily briefing. So a, um, I really enjoyed interviewing you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me, Andreas. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. And uh, my colleague, Mackie Lake, will be back with the founder of Real Vision, Rebel Pell, tomorrow evening. Uh, sorry, tomorrow afternoon. It's evening, my time in Europe uh, at the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So that's a must-watch must as well. See you tomorrow. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest and biggest names in finance.